Hey everyone, and welcome to the very first part of the first book of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Uh, there's four books in total, plus the prologue that we just went through. If you're listening to this without having listened to the prologue, that's okay. Uh, I do highly recommend going through the prologue. It gives you an introduction of who the Zarathustra is, and the prologue in its ten sections, or about twelve pages, gives a high-level overview of what we're going to be talking about in this book. If you don't really care about that and want to get into the specific ideas that Nietzsche and Zarathustra present on individual topics, you're in the right place. That's what we're about to start. Uh, as I mentioned, there are four books in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. They're all written at different times. And as we're going to see, there's a slight difference in the contents of each book. Uh, the first book and the first half of the second book are very much just Zarathustra's ideas on different aspects of human life, different types of people, uh, both very positive, affirmative statements about certain types of people and very negative, more insulting critiques of different types of people. The second half of the second book and the third book are much more oriented around some of the difficulties that Zarathustra himself is going through, uh, where, where sort of the rubber hits the road with him trying to implement his own ideas in his own life and facing some of the negative consequences of that, uh, dealing with nihilistic thoughts, dealing with negativity, dealing with the weakness that exists within him and how he faces that and why he tries to overcome it. The fourth book is very different compared to the other three books. When Nietzsche originally wrote it, he wasn't intending to release it. He only sent it to some friends and family. And then, as often happens with famous people who don't want things published, they got published. The fourth book is very different, as I mentioned. It's essentially centered around Zarathustra's conversations with a bunch of different types of people who represent one kind of excellent human being or one kind of human being who's very heavily weighted in one aspect of their personality. Uh, Nietzsche pretty much thought that all those traits to some extent existed within great men. All the conversations are with people that Zarathustra refers to as the superior humans. And it's essentially dealing with their personality types, their problems, uh, what strengths they have, what weaknesses they have. And Nietzsche ends the book with them all gathered together in a bunch of different speeches that culminate in a beautiful, beautiful section called the drunken song which is a really really cool section has some awesome ideas really truly beautiful ideas that pull the whole book together uh, but it will be a while before we get to that section so i just wanted to give you this brief update before we got into the individual sections and as we go through these individual sections in the first book second book so on i'll try and give updates as to the narrative points that we might otherwise miss when we're going into the deep dives on the individual sections. So that being said, uh, thank you for making it through the prologue. Thank you for making it here. Thank you all for your support in listening to this. And I am truly, truly, truly excited to get into the individual sections where Nietzsche and Zarathustra get into a bit more depth on individual topics. And there's some beautiful sections coming up and even wonderful incredibly profound single sentences that uh, I'm sure I'll be waxing on poetically about, or in my own style, waxing on ad nauseum <laughs> in a pitiful attempt to match Nietzsche's own writing and Nietzsche's own style. 
So for the most part, what's going to be coming is essentially just speeches. There's very little narrative plot. There's very little, oh, Zarathustra then went here and talked to this person. For the most part, we're going to be just dealing with Nietzsche's speeches through the mouth of Zarathustra. And even though for a fictional book that's sort of weird, there's not a lot of narrative going on, um, it's still extremely moving, extremely beautiful stuff. And I'm very excited to get into this stuff with you guys. So anyway, without further ado, Book 1 of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, The Speeches of Zarathustra, Part 1, On the Three Transformations. Three transformations of the spirit I name for you. How the spirit becomes a camel, and the camel a lion, and the lion, at last, a child. There is much that is heavy for the spirit, for the strong, weight-bearing spirit in which reverence dwells. The heavy and the hardest are what its strength desires. What is heavy? Thus asks the weight-bearing spirit, and thus it kneels down like the camel and would be well-laden. What is heaviest, you heroes? Thus asks the weight-bearing spirit, that I may take it upon me and become well-pleased with my strength. Is it not this, lowering oneself in order to hurt one's haughtiness? Letting one's folly shine forth in order to mock one's wisdom? Or is it this, separating from our cause when it celebrates victory, climbing high mountains in order to tempt the tempter? Or is it this, feeding on the acorns and grass of understanding, and for the sake of truth, suffering hunger of the soul? Or is it this, being sick and sending the comforters home, and making friends with deaf people who never hear what it is you want? Or is it this, stepping into filthy waters, as long as they are the waters of truth, and not repelling cold frogs or hot toads? Or is it this, loving those who despise us, and offering the specter our hand when it wants to frighten us? All these heaviest things the weight-bearing spirit takes upon itself, like the camel that presses on well-laden into the desert, thus does the spirit press on into its desert. But in the loneliest desert, the second transformation occurs. The spirit here becomes a lion. It will seize freedom for itself and become lord in its own desert. Its ultimate lord it seeks out here. His enemy it will become, an enemy of his ultimate god. It will wrestle for victory with the great dragon. What is the great dragon that the spirit no longer likes to call lord and god? Thou shalt is the name of the great dragon. But the spirit of the lion says, I will. Thou shalt lies in its way, sparkling with gold, a scaly beast, and on every scale there glistens, golden. Thou shalt. Values thousands of years old glisten on these scales. And thus speaks the mightiest of all dragons. 
All value in things, that glistens on me. All value has already been created, and all created value, that is me. Verily, there shall be no more, I will. Thus speaks the dragon. My brothers, why is the lion needed in the spirit? Why does the beast of burden, which renounces and is reverent, not suffice? To create new values, that even the lion cannot yet do. To create new values, that even the lion cannot yet do but to create for itself freedom for new creation. That is within the power of the lion. To create freedom for oneself and a sacred nay, even to duty, for that, my brothers, the lion is needed. To seize the right to new values, that is the most terrible seizure for a weight-bearing and reverent spirit. Verily, a predation it is to such a spirit, and a matter for a predatory beast. Once it loved as most sacred for it, thou shalt. Now it must find delusion and caprice even in the most sacred, that it might seize its freedom from its love. For this predation the lion is needed. But say, my brothers, what can the child yet do? that even the lion could not do. Why must the predatory lion yet become a child? Innocence the child is, and forgetting. A beginning anew, a play, a self-propelling wheel, a first movement, a sacred yeah saying. Yes, for the play of creating, my brothers, a sacred yeah saying is needed. The spirit now wills its own will. The one who had lost the world attains its own world. Three transformations of the spirit have I named for you. How the spirit became a camel, and the camel a lion, and the lion at last a child. Thus spoke Zarathustra. And at that time, he was staying in the town that is called the Motley Cow. So that was the very first section of the actual first book of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And being the first section, you might want to assume that there's some important information or signposts about what you're going to be getting into as a reader of this book and what sort of characteristics might be important and maybe even a little bit of foreshadowing of what this book's going to be about or maybe even what the character's going to go through. And it's called On the Three Transformations. And Zarathustra basically says, I'm going to explain the three transformations of the spirit, how the spirit becomes a camel and the camel a lion and the lion at last a child. Now, when I first read this, coming from my English background where I didn't know what the heck a spirit was or why it might be a camel or the camel lion or why it might be a child, this was very, very bizarre stuff for me. However, and as a listener or reader of Nietzsche, I recommend you do the same, I gave Nietzsche the benefit of the doubt and said, okay, this guy's probably on to something. 
I'm just going to assume that I'm an idiot and don't know what he's talking about and try and figure out what he's saying. And it took me maybe 10, 12 read-throughs of this entire book before I got a handle on the terminology, the way that Nietzsche sets up ideas, the way he describes things, and what he was trying to get at. And so, keeping in mind some of the stuff that we went over in our Key Concepts in History episode, I believe that's episode 2, you have to know what he's talking about when he talks about spirit. Again, for people who don't know, which I assume is a lot of people, people just assume the spirit is some weird ethereal thing that's part of you and it's like your soul and they probably use the terms interchangeably. But the spirit, uh, it actually has a more technical definition or one that can be used more accurately to actually get us a long way in using it. And so it's probably easier to think about the German word for spirit, Geist. The German word for, the German word for spirit, Geist, translates as either spirit or mind. Uh, used in that sense, you can, you can sort of think of the spirit as the active playing part of your mind that puts connections together that thinks about things, that sort of deals with the world more actively. Whereas soul, not to reiterate things I've said too much before, is more of that baseline level of awareness that you have of the world. It's more what you'd identify as the thing that receives information about the world and is impacted by the things that come through the senses where the spirit is just the active mind. It's sort of like the higher level layer of cognition. And so Nietzsche, right at the very beginning of his book, is saying, okay, before you get into this book, you know from the prologue that I talked about development, that I talked about the overhuman, and that this book is talking about the types of traits that I care about in people who are on the ascending line of evolution. And also this book is about people who are on the descending line of evolution. And we're going to see a lot of sections where... One section is extremely positive about the people he's talking about and describes all the virtues that they have. And so you can sort of intimate from that that Zarathustra and Nietzsche really like those people and those characteristics because they lead to ascendancy in human life. Whereas on the negative side, there's going to be a lot of passages in this book where he's just going off very vehemently against a group of people, and they're actually quite funny sometimes. And those are obviously the traits that he doesn't like, the vices, the bad things that he thinks lead away from the overhuman. And it's hard, you can't take each thing individually. It all forms this big mental network of things that are good and bad that Nietzsche sees, that he wants people to include all the good and try and fight away all the bad things that he's talking about. And you really have to give him the benefit of the doubt in his arguments until you get to the point where you sort of understand what he's saying and why he's saying those things. And so in this section, since it's the very first one, he's saying, guys, listen, before I get into all the other things about good and bad, there's some preliminary stuff you need to know about the transformation of your mental process, your mind, your spirit, that are going to happen through this process if you take it seriously. So the first thing he says, after saying that I'm going to tell you about these three transformations is that there is much that is heavy for the spirit, for the strong, weight-bearing spirit, in which reverence dwells. The heavy and the hardest are what its strength desires. And in this, he says a lot. So he's saying that there's a lot that's heavy for the mind, that's heavy for the spirit. A lot of thoughts that can cause negativity, that can cause you to 
really have to churn over in your head things that you believe before that you may need to reanalyze and either discard, modify, or adapt to a new way of thinking. And there's a lot of these types of heavy thoughts for the spirit, but only the spirit that is strong, weight-bearing, and in which reverence dwells. So there's a large number of people who these deeper sorts of conversations don't mean anything to. You tell them a fact about the world or you give them an interpretation of the world and then you just sort of brush it off because they don't care about those things. Their temperament is to not really care about any of those things and they'll go on living their life in a happy way. And that's cool. If you're one of those people, like, that's great. There's no real need to, like, analyze your life if everything's going well. Uh, but Nietzsche is very much talking for a specific audience. He's talking predominantly for the proto-philosopher type, the, the very mentally active people who care about their worldview, care about the way they see things, or who have come across very intense intellectual problems that they care about and can't seem to get out of. Nietzsche is essentially in writing this book, saying, hey guys, I've been there, I've been through all that, here's the things you need to know about how to be a better human being for this type of human being in order to deal with the issues that you're having. And so he's saying, listen guys, if you're this type of person that you have a strong spirit, you're, you're very intellectually capable, uh, that you're a weight-bearing spirit, that you can take on a lot of these weighty, hard ideas and that you willingly do so, and if you're the type of spirit in which reverence dwells, someone who truly has a great deal of respect and awe for different intellectual ideas, values, respectable people, characteristics, if you're the type of person who has a strong affinity for those things, then you're the type of person whose spirit will become a camel and will want the heavy and the hardest things in order to increase your strength. So, that, so that's a lot of information for one sentence, and he's basically trying to say, okay, if you're this type of person, you're going to enjoy this book, you're going to get a lot out of it, but there's going to be a transformation that goes on with you, maybe not all at once, but throughout dealing with your life and reading this book, because Nietzsche thinks that Dealing with the issues that life gives you if you're an intellectual type of person will be a very intellectual process. And this book is essentially trying to condense many of those issues so that you have to deal with them. And your spirit, even though you're taking on all these difficult tasks, you're, you're sort of willingly doing it. Even There's people I know, myself included, who've gone through really hard times not for any anything that sort of happens in our external lives. I haven't gotten really sick. I haven't. My family's healthy and happy, and everything's great. But for a period of a couple of years, there, I would get so involved in these questions that I thought were so relevant to my own happiness, my own fulfillment, my own development, that when I later looked back on them. I try and describe to a friend, like, yeah, I thought this was the most important issue for the longest time, and then I figured it out, and I get such a rush out of figuring it out. And then three months later, I'd tell my friend, oh, yeah, I really had to, like, think about the nature of time and the nature of reality, how it's not a static thing and how it's, like, more of a quantum reality that sort of moves through time and that when you try and measure reality at any given point, it's sort of like 
you're taking the derivative of reality with respect to time and so you can never get the full view of reality because by taking a momentary snapshot of a moving process you're obviously not getting half of the information <laughs> and so i would talk to my friends and give them essentially that example and i'd be so proud of myself at wrapping my head around some of these things or building them into my worldview and i started because this happened a couple times i started just stopping myself and getting a third person perspective from me talking being being astounded at what what does this guy care about like why was i stressing so much over something that seems so irrelevant why 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 was i so depressed or upset when i couldn't figure these things out and why why was i so preoccupied and putting myself through stress for trying to figure these things out and if you're that sort of person, if you take things seriously, Nietzsche is essentially calling out here like, well, that's normal for you. That's normal. There's a process that's going to happen for you being a reverent intellectual type person that you're going to realize there's a bunch of stuff you don't know. And as the spirit becomes a camel, there's going to be all sorts of stuff where you bow down to the things that you're reverent towards, the people that you're reverent towards, the ideas that you revere. You're going to bow down and try and take them on your shoulders and try and Put them on your back and try and see if you can live with them and incorporate them into your worldview. And you try and do that time after time in order to, and even if you don't know it, and that's Nietzsche's point here, he's saying, even if you don't know it, what you're doing is you're essentially making your mind stronger. Even though it sucks and you go through this process of, oh, I really have to figure this problem out, or what does that mean, blah, blah, blah even though it's a really stressful process and you're not consciously necessarily doing it to get stronger, that's what's happening. Your body is essentially trying to get stronger on its own and that's what the spirit is doing. And so Nietzsche then goes on to describe a number of different things that the, the type of spirit that does that will encounter. So the spirit says, what is heaviest? I want to take it upon me and become well pleased with my strength. The spirit sort of has this its own its own teleology, its own purpose that you may not even be conscious of. It's trying to become stronger. And in order to, to do that, it, it does all sorts of things that might be the hardest thing. Lowering yourself in order to hurt one's haughtiness. So constantly trying to underestimate yourself, to hurt your pride, to hurt your haughtiness, so that you get upset with yourself and motivate yourself to take on more. To say, you know what, yeah, I have a lot on my shoulders, but I'm not proud of that anymore. I can do more. Letting one's folly shine forth in order to mock one's wisdom. This is one I do constantly at work, with family, with friends. I have become so clearly aware of how much of an idiot I am most of the time, even though I, I don't know, I'm fairly informed about certain things, that whenever I make a mistake, I just point it out and I make fun of it and it's funny any new group of friends or any job that i end up on the people pretty much immediately within a week realize oh we can make fun of this guy okay cool like we're just going to insult you all the time and i laugh with it because i recognize that i'm a fool and i i enjoy that sort of thing and it hurts it mocks my wisdom so if i were the type of person that was again so proud of myself and all the things i know if i was if I, if I wanted to challenge myself, I would let my foolishness shine forth. 
so that I would, again, take away from my pride, so that I would, again, feel bad and therefore have the motivation to take on more, have my spirit take on more ideas, more challenges, more problems. Separating from our cause when it celebrates victory. Climbing high mountains in order to tempt the tempter. Again, more things that essentially just keep you hungry, keep you wanting more. Feeding on the acorns and grass of understanding, and for the sake of truth, suffering hunger of the soul. So again, even trying to accommodate your worldview and the way that you live life with truths that aren't happy, with truths that aren't pleasing, with the grass and acorns of understanding, and for the sake of truth, huff, suffering hunger of the soul, you're, you're just taking on things that aren't pleasant. And your spirit, your mind, by doing that, by attacking those things and trying to gnaw its teeth on those problems and incorporate them into your worldview, again, to quote Nietzsche from elsewhere, he says, the spirit most resembles a stomach. That trying to digest those horrible ideas about life, about humanity, about human being, about your own shortcomings, about the, imperf the imperfect image of the world, trying to incorporate those into your worldview and to live a fulfilled and happy life in spite of those or even because of those, that's one of those challenges that Nietzsche here is saying, like, you know what, if you're this kind of person and throughout the course of this book, you're going to be challenged on these things. But it's a test and it's, it's sort of like weight training for your brain. How much of this stuff can you load on to become stronger over time? And so... After naming a couple of these things, Nietzsche goes on to say, okay, well, you know, if you're this sort of person, you're going to take on so much that all these heaviest things, the weight-bearing spirit will take upon itself. And like the camel that presses on well-laden into the desert, thus does the spirit press on into its desert. Nietzsche's saying this kind of person who's constantly challenging themselves, who's constantly undercutting their own uh, pride in themselves and self-esteem when it comes to intellectual ideas, which is often a, a defining feature of this type of person, so it's no small attack. If you attacked me on my ability to play basketball, I'd be the first one to admit, yeah, I'm crap at it. Yeah, I'm terrible. And it doesn't matter to me, but if but assaults on my intellect I take a bit more seriously, and since it's more of a defining factor of who I am, according to me, those things really matter. And if I'm taking on all sorts of negative ideas and opinions and I'm sort of wrestling with these things on my own, in a metaphorical sense, I'm rushing off into my own desert. There's nothing around me. There's no one around me. Many of my friends, like, when I was going through some of these issues, they wouldn't really know what I was talking about, so there's no one really even to commiserate with. Um, and they're, you're taking on all these hard truths about the world and yourself and there's no, there's no oases, so to speak. There's, no, there's nothing positive in the distance. Everything looks bleak and horrible. And Nietzsche is essentially saying here that when the camel, when the spirit goes on into its own desert, into the peak of its suffering under the burden of all the thoughts that it's got in its head, essentially that type of spirit, the type of mind that is more receptive to ideas, that mocks its own pride, that mocks its own wisdom, that cares so much about truth and what what has been discovered and invented and created so far, it goes into the desert to become a lion. And that when the spirit has taken as much as it possibly can, the transition starts to happen where someone who was so reverent, 
who cared so much about the way things are and trying to figure it out, that spirit turns into a lion. So in the loneliest desert, the second transformation occurs. The spirit here becomes a lion. It will seize freedom for itself and become lord in its own desert. Its ultimate lord it seeks out here. His enemy it will become, an enemy of his ultimate god. It will wrestle for victory with the great dragon. What is the great dragon that the spirit no longer likes to call lord and god? Thou shalt is the name of the great dragon. But the spirit of the lion says, I will. And so this is interesting. And I don't think you should expect your mind to transform all at once. Certainly upon reading this, this is again one of those truths that you sort of have to have some experience with or picture happening that before you can sort of recognize that it's true. Otherwise, if you just approach this book like any normal philosophy book and say, okay, what are your premises? A, therefore B, therefore C, blah, blah, blah. Like that's not what's happening at all. Nietzsche is immediately in the section just saying, no, screw you. I'm going to talk about imagery and try and explain my experience to you, the reader, through imagery. And so, okay, <laughs> hope you're still with me after all this because it's a weird book. But essentially... If you're that type of person, if you're that type of intellectual person who cares so much about seeing the world the right way and believing the right things and, and believing things that make sense and caring about like the people in the past who've described the world a certain way and it's, oh my God, they did it so beautifully and that sort of thing, your ultimate God, in a sense, the thing that is the source of all value for you is thou shalt. And by thou shalt, he means this weird dragon thing that thou shalt lies in its way, sparkling with gold, a scaly beast, and on every scale there glistens gold and there thou shalt. Values thousands of years old glisten on these scales, and thus speaks the mightiest of all dragons, all value in things, that glistens on me. All value has already been created, and all created value, that is me, verily. There shall be no more, I will, thus speaks the dragon. And so you get this weird thing where the lion is essentially the, the non-receptive part of the spirit that needs to go into the aggressive attack mode. So if you're that kind of person who's receptive, who likes ideas, who cares so much about seeing things the right way, you're essentially looking back through time at all the best ideas that have been come up with, with hu from human beings and the values that they've put on certain things. So if you're looking at Christian writers, they, they put a lot of value on pity. They put a lot of value on compassion. They put a lot of value on loving your neighbor. And so these concepts, which in your development of your spirit, the building of your worldview, that sort of underlie probably a lot of the ideas, concepts, structures, societal institutions, a lot of these things that underlie those things are built on these values that have existed for thousands of years. And the lion is needed, the lion of the spirit, that aggressive part is needed to say, no, 
up till now as the spirit of the camel, the one that's reverent, that really cares what the value of things are, that cares about what people have thought, that spirit needs to develop the confidence and aggression to say no. Maybe you're right, but no. I have to do it for myself. I have to make new values. I have to value things for me that make sense for my biological entity. That things through time change. And what might have been useful a thousand years ago is no longer useful. And that instead of bowing down and taking all these valuations from other people, whether it's writers, family members, teachers, friends, all the things that people just tend to value that you've taken on your shoulders, I need to be able to say no and it's a really hard thing to do. Like if you're really into something, if you're really into basketball and you want to be the best basketball player that ever lived, you need to set your sights on the greats. You need to look at Wilt Chamberlain, Michael Jordan. You need to look at all these figures and try and follow their example and take from them their greatest things. But then at some point, if you're truly reverent about it, if you truly are struck with awe at how great they are, and one day you manage to get up to their heights, that same sort of reverent spirit who like cared so much about the game and looks up to these people so much is going to have a really hard time, a truly hard time, trying to say, you know what, I'm your equal. I'm better than you. To the people that he formerly considered his heroes. And so that's why the spirit of the lion is needed. To be able to say, no, now I am better. No longer will I bow down under the pressure that I put on myself, under your tutelage, under looking up to you. I might take some of what you have still. I might have something to learn from you, but I, I also have my own things to bring to the table. And so that's why that spirit of the line, the, the more aggressive confidence is needed. And then Nietzsche goes on to say that it, this aggressive confidence is really, it's a stepping stone to the child, the spirit of the child. He says that essentially the lion is needed to, to say no to the people that you revere, to the places you revere, to the things you revere, the ideas you revere. The thou shalt needs to be overcome in whatever area you're talking about. Nietzsche's talking about ideas, but it could be anything. You need to be able to say no to create room for the spirit of the child. And the child, Nietzsche goes on to say, is the only one that can create. The child is playing. The child is innocence and forgetting. It's a beginning anew, a play, a self-propelling wheel, a first movement, a sacred yeah saying. And so you can sort of picture a kid just playing happily. In probably any area that you're good in or that you enjoy operating in, whether it's playing video games or, for me, I enjoy brainstorming at work, I enjoy running meetings, there's a certain element of play that I bring to the table in those areas, and there's a certain amount of play that you bring to the areas where you're truly gifted in. And it's that play, that creative generation of new ideas, new values, new ways of doing things, that Nietzsche is celebrating here and personifying as a child, the spirit of the child. And so Nietzsche is saying, okay, you start out as a camel, you really, really care about a particular area, whether it's ideas or basketball or being a business person or whatever, you need to learn as much as you can. You need to constantly challenge yourself to know more. You need to put yourself down. You need to get rid of your pride. You need to take everything on your shoulders to become better than you are. Then, in order to get to the place where 
okay, you're really good in that area. Now you need to start being creative in that area. You need to play around. You need to, you've learned all the critical subcomponents of that area of life. So basketball, you know how to pass, you know how to dribble, you know how to shoot, you know how to play with a team. You know all the fundamentals so well because you've been so reverent, you've been so dedicated and getting good at it that now instead of just playing according to what exists currently, the current rule books, the current playbooks, the current strategies and techniques used by the best players of all time, you need to take that stuff and combine it in new and interesting ways. You need that spirit of the child. And to get there, you need that spirit of the lion to say, no, okay, yes, I am good enough to do this. I, I'm as good as Michael Jordan. I'm as good as whoever it is. And you need that spirit of the child. And so that's a rather long description of the first chapter. And again, I, I think it's a fascinating chapter, and it's a great introduction to the way that Nietzsche presents his ideas and his version of the truth. Uh, it's certainly not an A, B, C, therefore D. It's one that's very rooted in your experience, and I think it's something that once you start picturing it or you start thinking about yourself in certain areas that you really care about, you can begin to understand. And I hope that some of the examples I'm giving in the way that I'm describing it is is opening you up to a different way of describing the world, a different way of thinking than maybe you would have expected from a philosophy book or from uh, some dusty old German philosopher. And so, stepping back a bit from the actual text of this section, I think structurally it's very important. So, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, this is the very first thing that Nietzsche says, decides to talk about in his book. After the prologue where he sort of sets up, oh, this is Zarathustra, and this is sort of what we're going to be talking about, the very first thing he says is, okay, <laughs> these are the sorts of things you need to keep in mind about this book. You need to be this sort of person. You need to have reverence for the truth and want to improve yourself and be this sort of person. And then there's going to be a lot of painful experience in that. First of all, there's going to be the painful experience of building yourself, developing yourself, the camel stage of the spirit, where if, you're truly, if you truly want to improve your life in whatever area it is, from improvements in one particular area, basketball, to overall improvements in just every area of your life, so really taking a look at your character and the way that you behave and how you interact with other people and the underpinnings of why you do that it's going to be a really painful experience because you've got to analyze really honestly about yourself the things you're good at and the things you're bad at. And with Nietzsche, there's going to be more of an emphasis of the things that you're bad at or maybe that you're missing and what you need to do to fix those areas and why they're wrong. And after that, once you get into the lying stage of the spirit, if you find an area that you really love, basketball, self-improvement, whatever, you're going to eventually get to the point where if you've done enough homework, you've built the fundamentals in your character, in, in the sport that you're learning, in the business that you're developing, there's going to be the point where there's no, there's no people to look up to in that area anymore, that you're as good as they are. They have nothing left to offer you. The thou shalt is no longer an imperative that you can follow. And that you're going to need to say, no, I have to do it my own way now. I've learned the fundamentals. I have to combine them according to who I am and what I want. And that's a painful experience. It's painful in a couple different ways. One, I find it really, really tricky to be as immodest as to say, oh, well, you know, in this area, uh, I'm, 
I'm well ahead enough that I can't really learn from anyone anymore. I need to pick and choose for myself. There's no rule book that I can look to for the final answer on everything. I need to think through this myself. There's no one who knows this certain area more than I do, so I'm the expert on this area. And that's terrifying. If you have that reverence and that humility before things that are great, to eventually become that type of person yourself and still realize that you're still this humble person, that's a... It's tricky to assert yourself and say, you know what, I am the best type of person at this sort of thing, and what I say and do is good and is right and maybe it's wrong but i'll have to work through that that's terrifying and then the third one <laughs> so similar to that in uh, beyond good and evil i might misquote this nietzsche says something along the lines of it never occurs to someone who has deep reverence for things or people that one day they might be revered and it's that sort of thing. He's sort of saying in a different way what this chapter is about, at least the first two stages, that if you go through the work, if you build the fundamentals, you eventually one day will be one of those Michael Jordan, Wilt Chamberlain, Friedrich Nietzsche-type people that others will look up to. And that's a very daunting situation to be in because <laughs> you know a lot more than you did at the beginning, but there's still so much ambiguity and gray area in the world that it's hard to be in that position and and maintain confidence in yourself that yes even though I'm a very humble person I am also one of the best people in the world at this particular thing it's hard not only is Nietzsche setting up some of the difficulties that we're going to face in this book in this first chapter he's also setting up some foreshadowing of what Zarathustra himself is going to go through in this book so the first book and a half is again just Nietzsche giving long speeches about the way things are according to Nietzsche and so this, those will be the opportunities for us as readers to go through and act like the camel and challenge some of the ideas that we have and take a look at ourselves and say wow he's really he's really being negative about this type of person and he's some of the things he's describing are true of me should I feel bad why should I feel bad what can I do to fix that why is he right why is he wrong and so the first book and a half, the first book and a half, and so the first book and a half, there's going to be a lot of those camel type situations for us. In the next uh, end of book two, book three, that's when Zarathustra himself gives fewer of those speeches, and there's more narrative points where there is a lot of philosophy going on, but it's Zarathustra sort of being challenged or challenging himself, and sort of acting as the spirit of the lion to try and challenge himself to become the master and accept his position in the world and then the final part of the book is once he's accepted that his sort of play and how he decides to bring that back to the world and my experience with this book is that this the things described in this chapter are very true but they don't happen all at once and they often sort of it's often a two steps forward one step back type process uh, for me there are still many areas in which I know I don't know that much. And so there's that spirit of the camel thing. But one thing I've been working on the last couple of years is that spirit of the lion, recognizing that, hey, I've done a lot of thinking in, in my life about certain things, and by no means am I the wisest person of all time, but I'm no longer as reliant on the thou shalts in my life. All the things and people that I look up to, instead of just sort of 
taking their word for granted, their thou shalt and not questioning it sort of dogmatically. I'm, I'm trying to take it in and consider their opinions and consider their judgments, but really judging it from my own perspective. And that has been a very difficult journey to develop the confidence in yourself to live with reality and to make decisions and make judgments and be able to live with the consequences of that rather than being able to say, oh, well, you know, this person or this book or this sign told me that I should do this. And any negative consequences are either, oh, that's God's will or, oh, that's your fault because you told me to do this. No, no, no. You can't do that anymore. You're living with it yourself. You're, you're a child. You're a self-propelling wheel. You're, you're, you're playful with reality and you make your own decisions. It's a very painful process. And so as we go through this and challenge ourselves and act like the little camel, um, this, this process will happen in steps. It'll go two steps forward or one day, yeah, wow, I really conquered this area of basketball. Like, shoot, I really know how to do a bounce pass now. Like, you'll feel really good, but then you'll say, oh, crap. Like, okay, that, that area of basketball is covered, but now I have to learn to do the chest pass or I got to do the free throw. Like, damn, I'm crap at that. Who can I look at? Who can teach me? I got to feel bad about myself for, for another stretch of time. And so there's a lot of back and forth, but overall, I think that Nietzsche in setting us up with this idea of what we're going to be mentally going through at the very beginning of his book is a very, 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 very uh, towering genius. I, I can't go on enough about how smart this guy is. So anyway, that's it for chapter one of book one on the three transformations. I could go on for a lot longer about all this stuff, but it's already been a fairly long podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much for sticking with me past the prologue into the actual book. As you could probably tell from many of my rambling stories in this section, that I really love this section. And I look forward to talking to you guys in chapter two. Thanks again, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at AlexJDrake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, everyone.